Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so excited today. I am staring at somebody who has an incredible ring. Normally when you see a ring like this on somebody's finger and it's a woman, I normally have this joke that they say, what Super Bowl did you win? But unfortunately, I can't say that. I could just say, what NBA championship did you win? And that would be Jeannie Buss, my guest today, who I'm very excited, who is one of the owners of the Los Angeles Lakers. Very excited. I'm here with my two kids. Jeannie comes in here. She was so nice. She meets them. Asher says, I like the ring. And she says, oh, well, you can try on the ring if you want. He tries on the ring. It's like an I Love Lucy episode. He cannot get the ring off. I'm panicking because I think she's going to run out of here because this is a very expensive, beautiful ring. She's like, don't worry about it. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. It's five minutes trying to get the ring off. I'm looking to get soap. He gets it off. He takes a picture of himself, drops the ring on the floor. I'm like, oh my God, the ring dropped on the floor. What if it bent? Are diamonds falling out? He picks it up. I'm like, don't worry, Asher. It's just carpeting. Everything's fine. I'll be careful with the ring. I can take care of this ring. Just hand me the ring. He hands me the ring. I drop the ring on the floor. And I say, is it okay? I'll just give you the ring back. And this is what she says. Don't worry about it. I have nine of them. (laughs) (laughs) That's a true story. (laughs) So as I sit across from Jeannie, this is what I think. Family, because our father, the late Dr. Jerry Buss, obviously a big part of her life. You're doing things a certain way in your life as a teenager and growing up. And then all of a sudden... Your father buys the Lakers and the Great Western Forum and the Kings and the land next to it and the lease to the Chrysler Building in New York. When he bought the team, he went to the Great Western Forum and he 
took a chair and went to center court, sat down, and just took it all in. Mm -hmm. You're making those purchases knowing that it's not only a part of your legacy as a man, but it's part of your family's legacy. And your dream is that you're going to be able to work hard and pass things on to your family. And although obviously there's always going to be conflicts between family, mm -hmm. in the end your family's all you have and helps you with the foundation to be able to get where you need to go. For my life, I think of how supportive my family was for me and what I was doing. If I wasn't in a position where I had that, would I be able to succeed? Would I be able to do the things that I wanted to do and that I loved? Would I be given the confidence by my family to know that I could do it? I could step into a role and make it happen. I don't think I would. You know, family is really important. Last week, I interviewed Christopher Titus. His mother committed suicide. His sister committed suicide. And what's fascinating about him was how he talked about the fact that people think I had a tough life. But, you know, my dad was always there. There was always a roof over my head. And he always showed me the right way to go in my life. And it's unbelievable to me that somebody could go through so much pain. But when it all came back to things, it was all about the family. And I think to myself, if anybody listening out there, if you have a chance to have the kind of bond with your family or you have a chance to just shut them out and not bond with them, not listen to them, not be a part of their world just because maybe they say some things that offend you mm -hmm. or they do some things that upset you, I would certainly try to reconsider that because in the end, your family's all you have and that's normally what helps you with the foundation to be able to get where you need to go. I think if you take that tact and you have the kind of relationships that Jeannie Buss has had with her dad and with her organization, I'm certain that you'll have a great chance of having the kind of career that she has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm going to do this introduction. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. Jeannie Buss is entering her third season as president after 15 seasons as executive vice president of business operations for the Lakers. Jeannie Buss is now responsible for running all aspects of the Los Angeles Lakers organization, and she'll continue to lead all Laker business operations, which include managing team marketing, sponsorship, as well as relationships with broadcast partners. She'll also oversee the team's basketball operations, working closely with Executive Vice President of Basketball Operations Jim Buss and General Manager Mitch Kupchak. In addition to her role as team president, Buss also serves as the Lakers governor. She's currently a member of the NBA Advisory and Finance Committee and has served on the NBA Labor Committee during all the collective bargaining agreements with the NBA Players Association. She spent four years serving as president of the Great Western Forum before joining the Lakers, and she began her career at the age of 19 as general manager of World Team Tennis, 
I remember that, the Los Angeles Strings, while guiding the team to two league titles. She also created the Forum Tennis Challenge Series, which became a regular part of the Great Western Forum calendar for years. She was responsible for bringing players such as John McEnroe, Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, Jim Connors, Steffi Graf, Chris Everett, and Martina Navratilova, and many other top professionals. In 93, Buss brought professional roller hockey to Los Angeles as the owner of the Los Angeles Blades. Her outstanding leadership and dedication earned her Executive of the Year honors by Roller Hockey International. Buss is also using her considerable experience to lead a revival of WOW, Women of Wrestling, featuring female superheroes of the ring. Bus serves as a board member of the LA 2024 to bring the Olympics back to Los Angeles. In 2024, she's actively involved in the community and bus lists canine companions for independence, the Amanda Foundation, and the Best Buddies organization, among her many charitable endeavors, while also working with the Lakers Youth Foundation to raise money for Southern California youth charities. Bus graduated from USC, was named a trustee of the university in 2015. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jeannie Bus. Are you still awake? <laughs> I didn't know you, you were going to read the whole thing, but thank you. I'm so excited to have you here. You know, you think of somebody who's one of the most powerful people in sports. You think of them as a type AAA person. Everybody walks on eggshells. But I'm around you, and it's like there's no fear, there's no anxiety. I just have calm in my heart when I'm around you. Is that something that you do when you're outside of the business and when you walk <laughs> in the doors, you're an animal? Um, I, I, no, I'm not an animal. Um, I think that, um, you know, being in the position that I've been in uh, with the Lakers for so many years, I think in some ways I'm kind of a mother figure for Los Angeles that, um, you know, uh, to have a female-led organization now I think is inspiring for women. You know, we thought that maybe there was going to be the first female president uh, of the United States, but that didn't happen. Um, you know, I, I think it's unusual for sports because it's such a, a male-dominated field. Um, but certainly that, I think that leads to what you were talking about with family, that the, the Lakers are a family business. And that, that's not to say that it's a mom and pop business, that it's, it, it doesn't demean the business in any way. I think that um, the teams that are successful in any sport are the ones that um, treat each other like family. And they know that the commitment to each other is more than just for a paycheck, that, that, um, you know, that you're in something together. And when you have that feeling of uh, building something together with your family, there's no greater motivation. It's greater than money, um, and it bonds everybody together. So I, I think that that's kind of where I come from. And certainly, uh, it was my dad's dream um, to uh, keep the Lakers in the family. But when I was growing up, he made his money in real estate development. And when I was growing up, I always thought I would join the family business, which was real estate. And it wasn't until uh, I was 17, 18 years old that he made the move and 
cashed in all the real estate and, and went into sports. And again, it was all about wanting to work for my family, not so much about whatever the business was. It's about that motivation that you get when you're building something together with people you love. And at the time when he was thinking about cashing everything in, talk about risk. Yeah. You work hard your whole life, you have all these assets, and then you're putting all your eggs in one basket. When he came to everybody and said, you know, I'm thinking about making a run at the Lakers and giving up all these properties, what do you think? Was everybody supportive? or? It was a little bit odd, you know, but um, he was so passionate about it, and, and we grew up with sports. Um, he was uh, a brilliant um, mathematical mind. He um, was an undergraduate student at University of Wyoming, and he was offered scholarships to attend every great university in the country. Uh, and he chose to uh, attend USC because the football team. You know, he, he was a fan of the football team. So he was always motivated by sports and uh he uh, worked in Boston for a while. Um, he, he worked uh, for aerospace, you know, rocket science. And, uh, um, you know, he, he realized that that really, that nine to five world wasn't him. And uh, he was motivated to um, figure out a different way to make money. And with his mathematical mind, you know, it was real estate. What kind of socioeconomic dynamic was there in Wyoming? It was, it was um, you know, he lived with his mother and his stepfather, and his stepfather wanted him to quit high school at 15 to, um, you know, come work with him in the plumbing business. And so my dad ran away from home when he was 16 and, um, you know, started hustling pool. He just wanted to get out of, of, you know, where he was. So when he lived in Boston, he realized that in... Los Angeles, uh, there was, in for sports, there was this East Coast bias that teams on the West Coast really didn't matter. And he, he wanted to bring uh, pride to, uh, you, know, uh, you know, winning championships, you know, putting the Lakers on the map, um, making the Lakers synonymous with the city, that when you thought of Los Angeles, you would think of the Lakers. But before that, he's in Boston just trying to figure out jobs to right. scrape enough money together to just... To have season tickets. That to have would, season tickets for the right, Celtics, right. let alone do anything. So right. how does he make the trajectory from a guy who's working minimum wage or whatever it is to getting to where he got... He, he was able, you know, it's if you buy a building for this much and you finance it for that much and you collect rent on the apartments, you know, and you make it work. And if you can, you know, uh, make a profit of $1,000 a month, if you had 10 buildings, that would be $10,000 a month. And so, um, you know, he, he went to his fellow aerospace workers and got them all to, you know, scrape together you know, take 50 bucks a month out of their their pay and pool it all together and start buying buildings. But how do you buy a building by pooling $50 for each person? You know bankers and you, you know, you put a, a small deposit down and, and the, you know, you make your payments to the bank and they, they 
gain faith in you and they lend you more money and you you know the areas that people like to live and and uh uh, he built many, many apartment buildings in Santa Monica that um, he named after Monopoly properties. So if you see a waterworks building or a St. James Place in Santa Monica, you know that that was a building that my father built. Um, Donald Sterling ended up buying a lot of my dad's buildings when he cashed in his real estate. The former owner of the Clippers. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Anyway, that's that's kind of how he made his money. But his real passion was sports, and um, you know he he spent he he went to a Lakers game, and he noticed as he went to games that Jack Kent Cook, who was the owner of the Washington NFL team, I refuse to say that name. Um, he, he owned the the Washington football team and uh, the Lakers and the Kings in the Forum he he stopped going to games and uh he had moved to nevada because he was going through a divorce and he wanted to establish residency in nevada because they had more favorable divorce laws but basically he'd kind of given up on the teams in la and my dad saw an opportunity and spent three months or three years convincing jack kent cook to sell him the um the teams now if you want to sell a team there's bids from so many different groups and there's a board of directors the governors Mm -hmm. which you are one of them but back then you could just walk up to an owner at a restaurant and say hey uh, are you jack ken cook yes i'm dr bus can i sit down and talk to you for a second and you can actually create a transaction without the whole world even knowing right i mean it it, those days were much different we're in the age of technology and information flow and you know nothing's nothing's private but back then you know deals could get done on cocktail napkins right in order to get that franchise the lakers which i believe he eventually bought for close to 68 million dollars plus the lease to the chrysler building plus the 13,000 acres next to it plus the kings plus the Great Western Forum. In every negotiation, there's a starting point. Mm -hmm. There was a number in your dad's mind what he wanted to pay. Mm -hmm. There was a number in Jack Kent Cook's mind what he wanted to pay. And then they came together with that number. Do you remember as a teenager what the number was that your dad and his group of investors wanted to pay? He, He squeezed them for 10 million more than what my dad wanted to pay. And was, you know, it, it really, he had to scrape everything together to get to the, to the 67, $68 million. Um, but, uh, you know, he did it and the transaction closed and he had to go through, just like you said, the, the board of governors had to approve him as an owner and he almost didn't get approved, um, because he was young and he was, um, kind of a large personality um, known for wearing blue jeans in every meeting and uh, um, you know kind of a a ladies man and uh, I you know fast forward to 2004 when Mark Cuban um, was trying to buy the Dallas Mavericks and uh, my dad felt you know kind of championed Mark Cuban because he was the same age, basically the same age my dad was when he bought the Lakers. 
the owners were a little bit worried because he was brash and young and had a lot of money. And, uh, you know, that that uh, made my dad kind of take Mark under his wing. Um, but, you know, my dad obviously was um, approved. And that was May of 1979. In June of 1979, the Lakers had the number one pick in the draft. And they drafted a kid by the name of Irvin Magic Johnson. And uh, that was a, uh, you know, a, a relationship that transcended sports. Um, my dad represented something to Magic that uh, inspired him. And my dad um, connected so much with Magic that, they, that, you know, they almost had a, they didn't have to speak words. They just, just being in each other's company, they, they um, radiated a, a kind of aura of just mutual love and respect. And I think that was a really special relationship which led to a lot of success. Would you mind telling our audience about the first meeting that you had with Magic Johnson? <laughs> well, you know, he was he was a kid. He, you know, um, he was 19. I was 17. So we're basically the same age. And the doorbell rings, and my dad is upstairs, and he said, "Can you answer the door?" I open the door, and here's this kid with the most gorgeous smile I'd ever seen. You know, just um, you know, I'll never forget it. And uh, so I invited him in the house and told him that my dad was upstairs and he'd be down shortly and could I get him a soda to drink or something. And uh, we, st we chatted a little bit and, and Magic told me that he was really excited to be drafted by the Lakers, but he was probably only going to stay three years because he wanted to go back home and play for the Detroit Pistons. <laughs> and when he said that, my hair stood on end. And I, I said, will you excuse me? And I ran upstairs. And, and I'm out of breath. And I, I'm telling my dad, you know, um, I think you're going to have a problem because he's only going to stay three years. And, and you know, and, and my dad said, you know, sweetheart, settle down. He said, when Magic puts on a Laker jersey, and walks out on the floor at the forum, he's never gonna leave. And Magic's never left. <laughs> he's become, he, he could be the mayor of Los Angeles. Um, you know, that's, that started the love affair between LA and Magic. And, um, you know, that first year um, the, in the 1980 playoffs, um, you know, my dad's a rookie owner, Magic's a rookie player. Uh, of course, we have a, a great superstar in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, um, but uh, we were playing Philadelphia in the finals. With Moses Malone and Dr. J. So it was best of seven. Uh, we had home court advantage, which meant game seven would be in LA. And back then, it was a different format. Mm -hmm. They did two, two, one, one, and, and one. one. So in game five in L.A., uh, Kareem twisted his ankle, and uh, it, was, it was bad enough that they made the decision to not travel him to Philadelphia for game six because we were up in the series three to two. So if, if we lost in, in game six, 
we could come back to L.A. and have a game seven, and hopefully Kareem would be ready to play. And by not flying, hopefully keep the swelling in his ankle to a minimum. But that left the Lakers shorthanded without a center. And um, they were trying to figure out who's going to play center. And Magic said, I'll play center. <laughs> and, you know, proceeded to, uh, you know, have one of the greatest games as a as a you know, professional, let alone in the championship. I'm a savant. He scored 42 points that day. I think he had 15 rebounds and seven <laughs> assists, and they won the game and they won the championship. Yeah, in Philadelphia without Kareem. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, I, I think, a, a really special time, um, which kind of established that the Lakers were, you know, going to be a, a force to be reckoned with. And uh, certainly um, put both my dad and Magic Johnson on the radar of the rest of the NBA. So you go from the worst team in the National Basketball Association, and in two years, you win the championship. Yep. Incredible. Isn't it? It, it was. And, and uh, you know, that's when the NBA was dealing with a lot of uh, negative um publicity, uh, you know, alleged drug use. Alleged? <laughs> alleged. I wasn't there. I didn't see any of it, so I can't speak of it firsthand. But, you know, uh, you know, some image problems. And uh, at that time, the finals were tape delayed on CBS. You couldn't even watch the finals live. So, um, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, magic with his infectious smile really... Um, drew a lot of fans and having LA as a major market, having a competitive team. And, um, you know, you've, you've, you had the Philadelphia 76ers kind of coming to a tail end of their dominance as Dr. J retires. And of course, Larry Bird with the Boston Celtics. And, um, you know, those, um, you know, series against the Celtics between Magic and Bird uh, captivated the the country and you know made NBA primetime viewing uh, switching from CBS to NBC and uh, really um, you know kind of changing the tide of of where the NBA was and um, really setting the tone for where we are now. What did Larry Bird mean to you, <laughs> your family, and your dad? Um, you know, I, I, I think of um, when you have a, a rival, um, they bring out your best. They, you know, and, and who would you be if you didn't have somebody who pushed you to, to uh, you know, um, find places in yourself that you didn't know you had? And... Um, you know, losing to the Celtics was devastating for my dad. You know, with the the number of championships the Lakers organization had and the number that Boston had, it was really my dad's goal in his lifetime to have more championships than the Celtics. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. And so when, not only when we didn't win, but Boston won, that, that meant one more championship to have to to uh to gain and um but in 1985 
probably what most of that that team of the 80s would talk about was the that was the most special championship because they won on the floor of the Boston Garden. I was there. You were there? Yes, I was. That was the hook, the Magic Johnson hook. Mm-hmm. He took a hook by the foul line. How hot was it in the arena? It was like 97 <laughs> degrees there. I remember it well. I remember all the disasters and the good things. Do you remember the first time you or your dad got to meet Red Hour back? Um, n- not a nice person. He was mean? Um, just a curmudgeon. And, you know, Johnny Most, the... the Johnny Most, the <laughs> announcer. Johnny Most had this voice like this. He was like the biggest Homer announcer in the world. There's this comedian named Mike Donovan in Boston. He does this whole routine about Johnny Most being Johnny Least when it comes to anything. And it always to be a Homer. So, all right, Bird with the ball down by Magic. And Magic stabbed Bird in the ass, and he's bleeding all over the court. And the officials are calling the foul on Bird. <laughs> if you ordered a sex toy, Jake O'Donnell would... Call Come to your door, wrapped in brown paper. All right, burn with the ball. And he did this whole bit. So Johnny Most did the announcing for so long that he, by the end of his life, he'd smoked in the booth. He drank in the booth. He had his legs amputated. He was in a wheelchair. They couldn't get him out of the booth. So Johnny Most was bad, too. It just, you know, I mean, even, you know, Kevin McHale's wife, you know, it was. They were all mean. It was just, there was, it was. It was meant to be. You know how like th- there's there's people in your life you you know you're on a collision course with that you can't avoid them and and you think that some way somehow you will but you really just have to you 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 have to let that play out. So it, nobody in Boston was nice. Um no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I remember the most amazing documentary, and if you haven't seen it, you just got to see the one with Bird and Magic. It really is good. It's incredible. You know, Bird talks about how he didn't really give Magic the time of day, and Magic talked about how he really thought that they had a relationship and he could <laughs> like him, and they did a commercial together, and Bird invited him up to the house to have lunch, and he thought, God, I have a great relationship with this guy now. <laughs> And the next time they meet on the court, Magic goes up to him to hug him, and Bird just walks away from him, doesn't even <laughs> shake his hand. He was such a competitor. But when Magic was diagnosed with HIV, he got home after doing the Arsenio Hall show. Phone's ringing, and he picks up the phone, and it's Larry Bird. Is there anything I can do for you? Mm-hmm. And you see Magic crying, saying, listen, you never know who your friends are until something bad happens. That is true. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it. 
because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. So I'd like to go way, way back and take me through where you grew up, the dynamic of your mom and your dad, brothers and sisters. Um, well, I grew up in Pacific Palisades, and um, you know my my parents were divorced when I was in elementary school. How did that go down? Did you know it was going to happen? Because you seem like the type of person who's an old soul, and when you were five, you probably were like fifteen. <laughs> I wish. No, I I was. You know it. You know, back then it was like, protect the children, don't tell them anything, you know, they're too sensitive. And so when I would ask, where's dad, my mom would just say he's at the office. And so I just figured every dad was at the office. That's what they did. And so when I would go over to my friends' houses and their dads were home, I'm like, why isn't your dad at the office? (laughs) (laughs) It just didn't make sense to me. So he never came home. I mean, it was, it was, uh, um, you know, I, I was, I'm very shy and very self-conscious. And so when kids would ask me that question, where's your dad? Um, I didn't like not having an answer. So, you know, I remember finally just telling people he was dead, which is terrible, but that was as much as information as I could get, um, from my mom, who I know was probably dealing with a lot herself and she didn't really put you know think about what was going on with her kids because she's thinking about her own life and what's happening so you're living in the palisades with you your mom who else i have two older brothers uh johnny and jimmy and then a younger sister so there's four of us kids and my mom and your dad you don't see at all there was like a time period where we really didn't see him for a couple years no calls um presence you know and and I I mean you know now when I look back at it I realize how hard he was working 
and when you work that hard you also have to like release a lot of stress and you know he was doing really um knowing that it was difficult for him to be away from his family but he felt he was creating something that would that would be great for the family and that was his motivation but he was creating something that'd be great for the family but he didn't have the family right well i mean you know it's as i got older you know when i was you know 13 14 years old then i was allowed to you know understand what was happening the what the divorce meant um you know my both my mom and my father dating other people when do you notice your mom is dating how old are you um it was um i'll never forget she brought a date to my sixth grade graduation so what are you like 12 or 13 and so um it was kind of a weird place to have a first date but um you know, just everybody has a, a childhood where they, when they look back at it, they can see like where, you know, things, you know, stayed with, with you or, or, or shaped your opinion about things. And um, so how has that shaped your thought process about love and successful relationships? Um, you know, when I, when I did get to see my dad, um, I, it was, um, really, it, you know, I, I really liked having time with him, but a lot of times it was with, you know, a girl he was dating. And so I, I always felt, you know, couldn't this girl just leave me alone with my dad to have dinner, you know, and, and the girls were usually closer to my age than to his age. As it affected me later in life, you know, I uh, was engaged uh, to Phil Jackson and, you know, he has, you know, five children from two different marriages. And I was so hypersensitive that when his kids were around, I would, you know, disappear, you know, you know, take a break, you know, so that that the kids always had time with their father, that I never competed with his children for his attention. And, um, you know, and Phil didn't really understand that. You know, why do you, why do you disappear when my kids are around? Like, because this is, this is always what my wish was when I, you know, the way I grew up. And, um, you know, how, how something that happens to you when you're young, you know, stays with you your entire life. So when you're a teenager or you're in your 20s and you're hanging out with your dad and he's with a girl who's closer to your age than to his age, how does that affect you or any woman in that situation? Well, it, it was, it was kind of like you have to like look o- at it over time because, you know, when I was 14 and they were 19 or 20, that was really cool because he would give us money and we would go shopping <laughs> and they were always like really you know cool beautiful funny great girls to hang out with so I looked at them as like big sisters that you know showed me you know took me to Fred Siegel and got my hair done it was fun and then as I you know then it it got to the point where I was kind of the same age as them and so a lot of them became my friends and and uh then 
then time went on and then all of a sudden I was older than them <laughs> and it somehow it all kind of just stayed around the same age and and then I realized okay like you know this is it it, it it's really kind of um his style and that you know that's kind of where he was and and you know he enjoyed his life and I think I used to tell him you know dad every guy I know wants to be you and and uh you know god bless you. you you you're living the life that everybody would love to live and there was a, a time period when i graduated from high school that i ended up living with him i was going to live with him for the summer in between high school and starting usc in the fall and we had such a great time during that summer he said why don't you just live with me while you're going to school and you know to kind of catch up on the time that we missed and um i was you know of course that would be that would be a, a dream come true and it would be really fun and he had just bought the teams and uh he said but you know i'm gonna need a bigger house so we started you know looking at houses and he he took me to the polo lounge one day and he said we're gonna look at a house after lunch and uh, he goes, we're not going to buy it, but I just thought it would be fun to look at. It's an old movie star mansion called Pickfair. And I said, you mean Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, the, the famous house? And he said, yeah, it's a probate sale, and it's, the house is really run down, but I just thought it might be kind of fun to go look at it. So uh, we went to look at it. It was on the market. This is like 1980 or 81. It was like $8 million, which was like ridiculous. A probate sale, it was $8 million. Right, because she, she, had, she didn't have any heirs, and she wanted the money to go to charity, so it had to be you know, through the court to make sure that it was handled the right way. And um, so I made him take pictures of me in every room because... And there was a room where she had won an Oscar um, for the movie in 1932 called Coquette. And so there was the Oscars taking pictures with all this. So he decided, you know, it was three and a half acres of land in Beverly Hills. And so he just he put in a bid for what he felt the land was worth and, you know, five million dollars. And they took it. So the next thing I know, we're moving into Pickfair. And it was like it blew my mind. And so it was it was it was interesting because he my dad had just kind of become a celebrity in town in the sports world. But when he bought Pickfair, all of a sudden he was, you know, in the you know, calendar section, the entertainment section. He became part of Hollywood royalty. And, you know, we spent a couple years refurbishing the house back to the way it was. And so like he had one wing of the house, I had the other wing, and we we could make, you know, $100,000 a day for charity doing a luncheon or dinner, and I would do tours of the house. This house was, it was the first house built north of Sunset Boulevard and people were crazy for this house they loved it and it was uh it was just a you know it was a great place to entertain the 84 olympics came so we hosted the u.s team 
at the the house during the Olympics. I mean, it was it was crazy. What a time! And I, I'll never forget one because I was still a student at USC and. I woke up because somebody was playing the piano downstairs so loud. It's four o'clock in the morning. I have a final that day, and I like go marching downstairs, like, who the hell is playing the piano? And I walk, and it's Rick James. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, sorry. We <laughs> went back upstairs and, you know, just started studying for the final because I wasn't going to get any sleep. So it was, it was a really special time in my relationship with my dad. And, and uh, you know, I enjoyed it. Why do you think out of the four children that you were the one that he felt so comfortable living with him in the house the lifestyle that he was living at the time were some of the most beautiful women in the world many your age many younger than you Mm -hmm. many parties yet he felt safe with his daughter there was it because you never judged him I never judged him and and I I don't know there was like there was a, a a time period where I you know had this realization that if you listen to your parents and do what they say even if you don't agree with it, you're going to be ahead of the game because they, they're telling you something that they've learned and maybe you don't understand it. And so I, I was really good at listening to him and taking his direction, whereas I think my other siblings, you know, were always challenging everything he said, everything he wanted them to do, which is probably normal for most kids to you know challenge their parents authority but I just thought like well he wouldn't tell me this if this wasn't like a good idea so I I, you know I just I was good at following orders and and fulfilling kind of what his vision was you know to help me be the best that I could be obviously you're getting into relationships when you brought somebody home did he judge you? Yes. <laughs> he did? Yeah. I, you know, I, I, you know, my first boyfriend was a hockey player that played for the Kings. And it's funny because he bought, you know, the Lakers and the Forum and the Kings. And I refused to go to a hockey game because my only experience with hockey was seeing the movie Slapshot, which had <laughs> come out when I was 16. You know, now I'm 18. And, you know, I I thought if you went to a hockey game, you'd get hit by a puck. And so I wouldn't go. So my dad, you know, he goes, you have to come. You'll love it. It's so fun. And I'm like, no, I'm not interested. But I went to every Laker game. And so finally he said, you know what? If you come to a hockey game, a Kings game, I'll introduce you to all the single guys after the game. So I went to my first game and, and, you know, for any person who's never seen a hockey game in person, it, it, you know, you'll, it never, television doesn't do it justice. It is, it it is such a great sport and you feel the energy and you feel the ice and the, it's, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful sport. And so I was, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, February of 1980 and um, the Kings were playing a team by, you know, they were playing the Boston Bruins, who had a big mm-hmm. goon on their team. Terry O'Reilly. Terry O'Reilly and Al Secord. And um, so uh, uh, he messed with our goalie. 
and then, then the next shift out, one of the Kings players went over and fought the guy that messed with our goalie. And I was like, that's the guy I want to meet. You know, the guy that like was the enforcer, the guy that like took care of his team. I just, I was smitten. And so, you know, I, so my dad brings up five guys and, you know, <laughs> and there he was. And um, I uh, met him and, and uh, he said, what do you do? And I said, I, I'm a student at USC. And he said, is that, is that United States College? <laughs> I mean, he was, he was from the farm in, you know, from Paris, Ontario, and had just been called up to the Kings. He was 20 years old. And I was like, wait, there's like people in the world that, like I'm in this <laughs> little bubble. And he was so different than any, any person I'd ever met. And so my dad made a lot of fun of me, like, what are you going to do? Go live on a farm? You know, like, I mean, he's the one who introduced me to him, but yet he, uh, he gave me a hard time for that relationship, <laughs> but it, it was, it worked really well for a couple of years. What an amazing relationship you have with your dad, because I remember you decided to pose for Playboy magazine. Mm -hmm. Not only was your dad supportive of you as a person, but he actually had the shoot in his office. Yeah. I mean... He, well, he didn't know that I was doing it. Like I, I decided, you know, I, I was married at one time and I was going through a divorce and I thought, you know, what are all the things that I wanted to do that I didn't do when I was married? And one of them was to pose in Playboy. And it, it wasn't about like posing nude in a magazine. It was about Playboy. And Playboy had been a part of my family. As, as a matter of fact, one of the real estate holdings my dad had was the Playboy Club in Phoenix. And my aunt Susan, his sister, was a bunny. And I just, I loved the Playboy, you know, just you know, I loved half. I loved everything about it. I was, you know, 32 years old. So it wasn't like making the decision at, you know, 18 years old. It was something I was comfortable with. And so I contacted the, the West Coast editor and she sent me for a test shoot. So I had I was like every other model. You had to do a test shoot. I did a test shoot and I had to be approved or not approved. So I didn't tell my dad because I didn't want him to say, please put my daughter in the magazine. I wanted to to be there because I was I earned it being there. So it was uh, you know, three months and they came back and they said they that they wanted me to be in a pictorial. They had thought about me as a centerfold but I didn't I didn't rate as a centerfold that was an experience that uh, you know I'm glad that I had and 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 I really admire models that can do that but it was uh, it was physically demanding but mentally not stimulating at all if that makes any sense so I was like I was so tired but I was like bored does that make sense? But anyway, so when my my dad, when I when they approved me and I was going to be in the magazine, my dad had this brilliant quote where he said, it will be the first issue of Playboy magazine that I've never read. <laughs> so it was kind of like I am endorsing the magazine because obviously I read it every month, but this is my daughter. So I'm not going to, you know, it's 
that that issue will you know sit on on the shelf i have a lot of respect for your dad for reading that magazine (laughs) he's very good friends with half and and now i have a a really good friendship with uh half son cooper hafner and uh you know just playboys like a family it's to me so it was just something that was important to me i wouldn't say like every girl should do it it was something that i wanted to do and i accomplished a goal that i had but it doesn't mean that people have to do that tell me about your sister and your two brothers starting with your younger sister she um attended nursing school she she was she has a big heart uh she loves animals and you know uh she graduated from school did a couple jobs but um you know about 20 years ago she became the um like she created the Laker Youth Foundation. So, like, you know, she kind of teamed her love of the Lakers with her um, big heart to help people. And so um, she created, um, you know, we we uh, give grants to schools and, you know, uh, have the goal of trying to refurbish public courts to make sure that kids can play basketball and on courts that that don't have any dead spots like at the Boston (laughs) Garden. And then my two brothers, um, you know, worked in different jobs uh, for my dad. Um, And, uh, you know, so Jimmy ended up really um, fitting into the basketball of the basketball area of the Lakers. And Johnny uh, works on real estate projects for the family. And, uh, you know, then my dad uh, finally kind of settled down uh, with a, a, you know, a a woman that he cared about very much. Did you like her? Yeah, I did. And um, she had, uh, you know, two more children, which are my two half-brothers. So I actually have four brothers uh, two older and then two younger, but the younger brothers are like 28 and 30. And, uh, so I'm, I'm more like a mother figure to them than, or a big sister. They're, they're great kids. You know, there were so many different things that happened within the organization and so many things that you've seen. Tell us something that just blew you away. That's a hard question to answer. I, I think of when Magic Johnson, uh, decided he wanted to try coaching and he co- actually coached the Lakers for like 12 games and he um, you know was addressing the team in the locker room and at that time you know you didn't have smartphones but you you had pagers and you had things that were distractions and um he just he couldn't get over uh players that didn't have the same kind of work ethic that he had and it it frustrated him to the point where he decided he couldn't coach because he would get out on the court and start playing with these guys and he was still better than them and you know um i think that that's always a problem with um, coaches is 
you know, finding players and how to motivate players. And that's, you know, why when Kobe Bryant came, you know, here's a guy that's the most self-motivated person on the planet that, um, you know, the pride that he took in being, you know, trying to be the greatest player ever, you know, you didn't have to tell him what he needed to do. He was always asking, what do I need to do? And I, I think that was probably, you know, when you have a generation of players like we had before Kobe, um, you know, that didn't take it seriously, you know, that, that, was, that was scary to me. You know, because Magic had to retire suddenly, you know, we, he, he would have played a couple more years. Magic's last year, the Lakers lost in the finals to Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. So everybody was kind of prepared, like, okay, what's going to be the next, you know, series against those for those two? Like, what's going to happen next? And, um, you know, we never got to see that. Never got to see the goodbye tour that so many people do one of the things i know that is the driving force behind you was you weren't going to let that happen again with kobe right right and that's why there was such an incredible celebration and he hated it kobe hated every he you know he hates stuff like that but he he humored me so he did it for you well i mean i think he did it for everybody he was humbled truly humbled at he had no idea that fans all across the country would would you know pay their respects the way that he did they did and he he was really truly touched kobe he does the farewell tour Mm -hmm. everybody gives him gifts at every arena it's a celebration (laughs) he's obviously a first ballot hall of famer and then you have somebody like tim duncan who's also a first ballot hall of famer who's had an amazing career, won mm-hmm. the same amount of championships as Kobe. Mm-hmm. He knows in his mind he's going to retire, but he doesn't say anything because he doesn't want to go around and be celebrated. He doesn't want people giving him gifts. Do you think it's more selfish for a player to do the farewell tour, or it's more selfish for the player not to do the farewell tour? I, I think it's selfish when they don't let the fans know so that they can you know especially somebody like Tim Duncan who had such an amazing career and so that that makes you think that maybe he wasn't really he hadn't really accepted his retirement but for Kobe when he called me to to tell me that he was he wanted to announce his retirement um you know and he he told me two weeks before, but he wanted to keep it quiet. Of course, he could trust me. And um, it was like you could see the relief for him, that it was really he was at peace with it. And I think that if he had gone a whole season going, Am I, is this the, my last year, is it not? I think it would have haunted him or it would have been difficult for him. So I think he, he did the what was right for him by making that announcement. When your dad was thinking about hiring Phil Jackson and brought it up to you, I believe you thought it was a bad idea. I I did because I I thought we had two really big personalities in Shaq and Kobe, and that to bring in a third personality would 
you know, upset the balance. And that Phil, like my only, you know, knowledge of Phil was that he was just kind of a funky dude who, you know, rode a motorcycle and wore tie-dye and, you know, just not like our style, you know, not like uh, Pat Riley with the Armani suits and the hair slicked back. There was a style with Pat Riley of the Armani suits and the players all wore suits, but they always say it all starts at the top. Mm-hmm. Yet the owner wore jeans every day. <laughs> how did that happen? You know, it's, it's, I mean, if you look at Pat Riley, you know, how he got the job was so unusual because the Lakers had hired Jack McKinney as coach. Um, he gets into a bicycle accident in Palos Verdes and is hospitalized and never ends up coaching the team. They make Paul Westhead the interim coach. They win a championship that first year, then they lose the next year. Paul Westhead, here's a guy, he comes in, he wins a championship, and then he gets fired a year and a half later. It's like, what do you gotta do? He was gonna take the ball out of Magic's hands, and it just wasn't what Magic wanted. And so, so when McKinney went down, and now Westhead, uh, is moved up back then there was only one assistant coach <laughs> so different now but so they were like oh shoot who are we going to get as an assistant coach that's available I mean we're in the season who's seen the team who knows the team well Pat Riley was working with Chick Hearn in the booth so they said well he's we've already got Pat here he's seen all the games we'll just make him assistant coach so now he moves to assistant then they fire Westhead in the middle of the season, and my dad decides he wants Jerry West to finish out the year as the coach. And Jerry West says, I am not coaching again because he had tried coaching and he hated it. So they made Riley the coach. And, you know, Riley was kind of a beach bum, you know, kind of, you know, a 70s kind of guy with the long, shaggy hair. and. And so when he was put into that role, he, he, the most authoritative figure in his life was his father, who used Brill Cream and, you know, combed back his hair. So he decided, I've got to be more authoritative, and he used his role model. And so kind of he, 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 he put himself in that role to say, now I'm your head coach, I'm the authority here, and he had to to earn that. But you know that was part of it was the just the physical look that I I'm different now. I'm not the guy that you knew as the fun radio guy. I'm now in charge, and it was a very interesting transformation to me because I I'll never forget I was walking down the hallway at the forum, and you know his nickname was Riles, and I'm like hey Riles, and he stopped and he goes, call me Coach now. <laughs> okay, coach. Got it. So everything comes together at a certain point in time. The Staples Center opens in 1999. Yep. Phil Jackson comes to the Lakers in 99. You got Kobe and Shaq, who are now three years in together. When do you start to realize you're drinking the Phil Kool-Aid? You know, as soon as I met him, um, you know, I was so impressed. I think it was his voice that got me and um you know i saw that how um people responded to him and that you know he he was somebody that could lead 
a person create a path to, to your personal best. And, and everybody wants that. Everybody wants to see the path that can be laid out for them, to, for them to, to meet their goals. What was he doing differently than the other people didn't do? What made him so different? He, he, he got them to, to let go of what was best for them as an individual and to sacrifice for what was best for the team. And it meant maybe your, your scoring average would go down. And, you know, for Shaq in particular, I think it, you know, Shaq worked harder. You know, it was, it was uh, Shaq responded well to, you know, strong authority. You know, he, his um, stepfather was military. You know, Shaq wants to be a police officer. That's his hobby on the side. And he, he liked the structure of what the triangle offense was about, what Phil was, you know, preaching. And, and certainly in our league, when you have, you know, titles, when you show that you can produce, that, that makes people pay attention right away. And so whether it was, you know, Shaq and Kobe coming into their own and, you know, it wouldn't have mattered who coached. Um, I just saw that um, everybody just kind of fell in line and he created this uh, great team atmosphere. And I remember getting in an argument with Phil um, because he scheduled uh, practice on Thanksgiving. I said, these guys, this is like you know, they're so busy. Why wouldn't you give them Thanksgiving off? And he said, he goes, I'm bringing them in in the morning. They'll have plenty of time to have dinner in the afternoon with their family. He said, but Thanksgiving's a holiday and they need to be together because this is their family. All comes full circle, doesn't it? Right. Family. It that really resonated with me. And, um, you know, and during that, while Phil was the coach, you know, I really felt like team mom, you know, that I, I really felt that, um, you know, I could, as, as things happened with players that he would know about, that I could step in and, and kind of help and solve problems and, you know, be there when, you know, um, a player's wife was going to have a baby or, you know, throw a shower or do, you know, just do things that, um, you know, a coach's wife would do in any other organization and it just all fit together they say a woman knows within five minutes <laughs> of meeting a man yeah if I she's going to be with him i knew i didn't i didn't know if he was married or divorced or i didn't know what his deal was and but it was you know I, I wouldn't have, if you would have show, you know, seen a picture of him, I wouldn't have said, oh, I, that guy's attractive. But when I met him, he just knocked me over. And, and sure enough that when he decided to come coach the Lakers, it was uh, kind of the end of his marriage. And, uh, you know, it's like timing's everything. Was your dad like, okay, we started off with the farmer from Canada. <laughs> now you're going to do it again to me? Well, I, I told Phil, I said, you know, I'm not, if we're going to see each other, then it has to be with full disclosure. I'm not going to have an affair with you. I'm not going to keep a secret because a secret can compromise an organization. And so I, you know, went to my father and told him. And, you know, once again, my dad spot on with 
what he says. He thought about it and he said, you know, I've always thought you would do well with someone older who would appreciate you. So. It also comes full circle with the way he lived his life right. after the divorce. But you know what happens when people are going out in an organization and let's say there's a bad day or you get in an argument. No, we never fought. We really didn't. I mean, I would disagree with him when he would say some of the things about the players publicly because that's kind of what he liked to do. But that was his style to kind of zing them in the the media to get the best out of them. And, um, you know, um, and, you know, we recently uh, decided to end our engagement because, you know, we've spent almost three years apart now with him, him taking the job in New York. And um, I realized more than ever how much the Lakers mean to me and that this is where I want to be. And I, you know, my my team needs my full attention. And so it was it wasn't anything um other than just growing apart and I'm I'm happy for him and I wish him success because he's that's really is his dream job because he was a, a, a player for the Knicks and you know coming full circle a lot of people they'll say how he took the gig for the money you're <laughs> one of the first people who comes to his defense and says Phil doesn't do anything for the money. No. Phil does it for the respect and wanting to be a part of something that he started with, just right. like you want to be a part of what you started with. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a man of integrity, and in that I I think that that word is is uh, you know so important to me. And and uh, I remember, you know, he has this thing where he every season he would give players books, and you know he would pick out each book specifically for that player and you know guys would make jokes about it like I'm not going to read it you know and it's going to sit on my shelf I don't care and I said how do you bring yourself to do that every year when you know so many of them make a joke about it and and he said he goes he goes people misunderstand I'm not asking them to read it on this road trip or anything he said if they don't read that book for five years or 10 years, or maybe when they become a father, they'll reach for it. He said, it's, it's a lesson. I'm their coach for life. I will always be part of their life. Any of my players that have ever played for me, if they call me, I am there for them. And I thought that was such a beautiful thing. And that, and, and, you know, so many, you know, people in our business it's like it's all about like you know what can you do for me today how can you know how are you useful to me and when you're not useful I'm done and uh, that's never how Phil thinks tell me the similarities between Phil and your dad <laughs> not a lot <laughs> no they're both very well read um, very intelligent um, you know, but uh, very, very different people. And, and I think that that was, you know, part of, you know, a difficulty for them to really, um, you know, bond together. But, but I know my dad appreciated uh, Phil for what he brought to the Lakers and, and Phil coming back the second time and, uh, you know, being successful again was, was important.
six degrees of separation. I'm going to yeah. mention a person's name, okay. a situation, and I just want your take on it. The announcement of Magic retiring due to HIV. Um, that was, I've only seen my dad cry twice, and that was one of the days. And uh, he was a mess. We were all a mess. And the strongest person in the room was Magic. Magic was taking care of everybody. How did you find out? Uh, my dad, uh, you know, he told me the day before the announcement. And, you know, at that time, you know, it was a death sentence. Like, you know, it wasn't um, as advanced. And, and all we could think about was, you know, losing this person that was so important to us and, and his, his life. And, you know, Magic took it head on and he's a hero. Kobe Bryant. Kobe. Um, you know, he never ceases to amaze me. Um, you know, speaks Italian and Spanish. But, you know, he was one of those kids that got to come straight into the NBA at 18. So he never went to, to college. And, you know, um, I, I think the sky's the limit for him. He's, he's a young man, and there's so many things that are, you know, going to happen for him. I had lunch with him last week. He's got a new baby. He's just he's, he's a, an amazing talent and is, has great things ahead for him, whatever he does, decides to do. Donald Sterling. Uh, Donald Sterling, I, you know, um, known him the majority of my life. Um, when my dad and I would, would talk about, you know, the future, he would always say, you know, when it came to the Clippers, he said, Donald Sterling's never going to sell them. So we don't need to worry about that. Let's talk about these other things and never, uh, never saw that coming what happened I've never personally seen him uh, you know uh, speak uh, poorly of anybody um, so it was a surprise to me um, because you know my my father wouldn't have been friends with somebody who was you know that kind of person the trade of Shaquille O'Neal um, you know, my dad, it was really, to my dad, it was a, it was a money thing. You know, Shaq wanted $30 million a year. My dad was willing to pay him $20 million a year. It wasn't going to work. So he decided to make a trade. Um, the thing that bothered me was there was people in our organization that um, felt they needed to trash Shaq when he left. And there was no reason to do that and as soon as he was traded I knew he would have harsh words but that's you know you have to let somebody work through their emotion and you know I that very first day was the day I started building a bridge back to Shaq and um, when uh, he went into the Hall of Fame he wanted to go in as a Laker you know that that uh, you know even though he was traded um, there were so many good feelings when, when he was with the Lakers, and I was never going to ever trash that time. That, that just is so short-sighted to me. Shaquille O'Neal, in his prime, asks for $30 million. You don't pay him what he wants. Kobe Bryant is 
at the winter of his career, injury prone at the time, yet the franchise writes him a check for $30 million each year. Now you tell me how that relates. It was, it was just an unusual situation because his contract was grandfathered through on the CBA, so he was eligible for a lot more money than any other player. And it was just, it was a financial decision to my dad that, you know, he didn't want to pay that money. And it was, it was, you know, that's the owner's decision. He's allowed to do that. If you were the owner then, would you have given Shaq the $30 million? Um, You know, the rules are different now, but um, if, if you had to make a choice, because if you would have paid Shaq, you might not have been able to fit Kobe's upcoming salary in. You, you know, you would always pick the younger player. You just do. And so that's what my dad did. It was plain and simple. It was nothing personal. He loved Shaq. And so then when my father was dying, um, Shaq came to see him at the hospital, you know, to make sure that they were good. And he wanted his jersey retired before my dad passed away. He wanted to make sure that they had closed that whatever feeling there was because they, they truly cared about each other. David Stern. Um, David Stern, uh, you know, built this league. Um, he had the right personality um, to grow the league to where it is because getting owners on the same page you have to you have to be a, a hard driving uh person to get everybody focused and, and moving in the same direction because the ownership groups are the most competitive people in the world and david knew how to to uh keep everybody together and grow the league and and uh he's a brilliant man a brilliant um politician the definition of a governor in the nba a governor is the person that can um that represents the 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 team in all matters uh at the league level and the league will only recognize one governor they will only listen to one voice from each team so it, it, it becomes very important who the, the, the governor is uh, for league matters. Jack Nicholson. <laughs> the greatest. Um, he, he is, um, you know, he's a Laker fan, and we don't bother him. We let him just come to games and enjoy games as a fan, and uh, he truly cares about uh, the players and – winning and losing he doesn't like to lose so he hasn't been to as many games in the last few years as he used to um but uh he he kind of changed every every team in the league has what they call a jack nicholson seat in their arena and you know he he's he's the man a lot of people don't know this, but when you were in charge of the Great Western Forum, you got into concerts and musical artists and huge stars. Tell us a little bit about that and tell us how musical artists compare <laughs> to NBA players. They're, they're so different. And dealing with promoters, I think, was uh, 
you know, not comfortable for me because you never get a straight answer, never really understand where the tickets go. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the artists, very demanding, some, some easy, you know, a lot of fun. Some, you know, uh, don't make eye contact with my artists, don't, you know, don't ask them anything, don't, uh, you know, send the employees home when there's a sound check because we don't want even the employees to hear from their offices what the music is. Just, it was, uh, it was a, a very different business, and I'm glad I saw that side of the business. Billie Jean King. Uh, Billie Jean King is... Um, you know, uh, when I was, when she played Bobby Riggs in 72, 73, the battle of the sexes, um, I watched it with my dad and my dad pointed to the TV and he said, this is going to change the world. And, um, certainly she, um, I don't think really thought of herself as, you know, the, the head of the feminist movement, but just her personality, her leadership, her, um, you know, uh, grit um, made her, you know, like uh, somebody that many women look up to to this day. She's an icon. She's a legend. She's great. She's a mentor of mine. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, Kareem is... Uh, you know, that's another great documentary, um, the one that Kareem did uh, with his story, because there was things in it, and I've known him over, you know, 30, 40 years. There were things in his documentary I never knew about him. And uh, I think he he was um, at a time period where um, he, he was really kind of, um, you know, told not to share, not to, to, uh, participate and was kind of aloof. And I don't think that's really his true personality. And I think he's in the last few years, you've seen him become more outspoken and more passionate and, and show the true Kareem, which is a brilliant man and intellectual and somebody who can really look at, at, at things that are happening today and and articulate and make sense of what it means to society who's going to win a championship first <laughs> clippers or the lakers i like the roster that the clippers have i'm a huge chris paul fan um i serve on the labor committee he's head of the players union i am very impressed with him off the court so i know he brings that leadership to the clippers um i think you know, the problem is in the Western Conference, you've got to beat the Spurs and the Warriors to get to, to the chance to play probably Cleveland in the finals. That, that's a lot of basketball. That's tough. So, um, you know, but the, the Clippers have all the pieces that they need and a great coach in Doc Rivers. The three years, your brother Jim. The timeline. The timeline. Yeah. 
three years make things happen or else there's a change well the the timeline was created we we had a family meeting when you say we the six of us kids who my dad left the team to so it, you know my my way of of uh, operating is to build a consensus amongst my siblings so everybody's on the same page even though I'm I've been given uh, the role as governor I, I really don't need to you know, run everything by them, but I feel that's kind of my style of leadership. And so in this meeting, I asked my brother, you know, how long it would take for the team to be competitive again, because in the, you know, 32 years while my dad was alive, um, he only missed the playoffs twice in 32 years. And you missed the three years. Yeah. And so I, I asked my brother, you know, how long, and you know, f from my point of view, it was about, it's about like um, how you manage the business, the cash flow. You're always looking 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. You know, how, like, I need to, to know, like, when we're going to be back into the playoffs, when we're going to start competing uh, deeper into the playoffs. And, you know, so it wasn't anything more than that. And my brother told me three years. And I said, well, you know, if, if, if that's, if, if we don't get back there, then, you know, we, we're going to have to talk about making a change. And he said, absolutely, which was a kind of a private family conversation. And then he he was doing an interview with the L.A. Times and he he shared the story about the timeline. And so it put me in a position now that with the media to, you know, are you going to hold your brother to the timeline? Well, I didn't. I don't need to hold it to him because he created it. It's his own timeline that he put on himself, and so, um, you know. And now here we are in our third season, and it looks, um, you know, it's not realistic that we. I mean, there's still a chance, and so, um, you know. We'll, like every other team, we will, as soon as our season's over, we will assess where we are and, and talk about moving forward. Do you think that your dad made a mistake leaving the team in equal shares to the children? Because how can one person have power over another? Or how can one person make a decision? It always has to be a vote, <laughs> but there's six people, so it could come up three and three. How is there a tiebreaker? How do you make it work? Um, you know, we're figuring it out. We're, you know, it's, uh, I don't think my dad made a mistake. He knew, he knew um, how passionate we were about um, the team. And he, you know, he very, it, it, it was a 10 year process that, you know, he started in 2005 to transfer the stock of the Lakers to a trust and pay the taxes each time he transferred stock so that it you know many times when an asset this size is passed from generation to generation the amount of inheritance tax estate tax is so great that you actually have to sell the asset in order to generate the money to pay the taxes and so he wanted to make sure that we wouldn't have to face that choice that um, so many people have in our position. And so it was a very disciplined approach. And, um, 
you know, a successful approach and hopefully we can continue to, to, you know, hold up the vision that he had for us, but he, he, he wouldn't have tolerated three years in a row of not being in the playoffs. If he were alive today, your dad would make the change. The team came first to my dad. I mean, that, that was his, you know, he, he did whatever it took to, to make sure that he had a winner and that, you know, that, that, that the team is relevant and part of the conversation and is something that the fans could be proud of. Magic Johnson. <laughs> I'm having dinner with him on Tuesday. Um, he's, he's like my brother. I feel like um, he is someone that's so uh, special and has a natural uh, leadership to him and the relationship between he and my dad. Um, I don't think you'll ever see again in sports. Um, they really truly um, just brought out the best in each other and, and, and motivated each other and Magic. And now watching Magic with the Dodgers, it's like he, re he listened to everything my dad said about how to, to approach things. So proud of him. Your proudest moment? Um, I think the first year at Staples Center winning a championship uh, because it was it was so traumatic for our fans to leave the forum that I, you know, I'd, I'd have discussions with season C holders who said, I just want my same seat that I had at the forum. And I said, well, you can have your same seat you had at the forum, but we won't be there, but you can go and <laughs> sit there. You know, it was it was a real, you know, people in LA didn't go downtown. They avoided having to go downtown. Um, and, uh, you know, winning that first championship, it just made all of that go away. And, uh, you know, we never look back. Your biggest disappointment in your career and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. <laughs> um, I guess that the biggest disappointment would be um, my dad, you know, gave when I became the president of the Great Western Forum, he gave me three directives, which were bring the Harlem Globetrotters back because they had left our building. Um, get Davis Cup, which is the, you know, international competition for men's tennis, and book the Rolling Stones. And I didn't ever book the Rolling Stones. What advice would you have for the young person growing up in the Pacific Palisades, <laughs> how to get to the next level? My advice to people who want to get into sports is that, um, you know, get your foot in the door, you know, internship, whatever it takes, and learn how to do like try every different area um and and i can tell you that uh if you can generate revenue if you can sell a sponsorship if you can sell a ticket um you're worth your weight in gold if you can generate revenue be a revenue generator not a revenue spender <laughs> because when when uh, you know the the boss is looking at cutting expenses they're never going to cut somebody who brings money in and so that kind of gives you uh, a, an opportunity to kind of pave your way because as I've seen in you know 
uh, a sports business. It's, it's, you know, you have a team that's known worldwide, but you have about 150 employees. It's a small company and, um, people wear many hats. And if you, you can, um, you know, edit a press release as well as, um, you know, navigate getting to the mayor to, uh, you know, get something on his desk that's important to the team. If you can do, you know, a couple different things, you, you can grow in, in the business because those, those are people that you don't want to lose. Jeannie Bust, you are a force of nature. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I really it. enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, Landy, I'm John Bassett from Hollywood, California. Congratulations, John. You are a winner. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Landing on A-Rod 1. It's a five-star review on January 28, 2016, titled Top Notch. The review reads, excellent show, thank you. Thank you so much, A-Rod1. Congratulations. You are a winner. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.